Our scripture reading is from Acts 17, 16 to 21. It's found on page 926 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you guys to take that one home as a gift. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, who does this what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. And now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Well, good morning and welcome uh, again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman and I serve as one of the pastors here. And we're really glad that you're here this morning, especially if, uh, if you're newer uh, with us today. I know uh, exploring church or finding a new church home isn't an easy thing to do, so thanks for, for doing that with us this morning. If you're newer, we're really glad that you're here with us. And as we continue in our time together looking at the scriptures now, I'd love to uh, begin that uh, portion of our time together by praying and asking uh, that God himself, who's spoken these words, uh, would continue uh, to speak through them to us this morning. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the gift of your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, and thank you that you've spoken them by the Holy Spirit, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit now you would uh, speak to each one of us, uh, yes, individually in our own lives where we need to hear these words, but also would you speak to us as your body, as the church together as a whole. Would you shape us um, and form us in these things? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My first role at Christ Community after I finished our pastoral residency program was to uh, lead the, the launch of our downtown campus. And my wife, Rachel, and I, since back about 2010, we lived in a, a loft apartment in the city market area of downtown at 2nd and Main. And uh, we had this, this loft there, and we began kind of gathering people to start this new congregation in the heart of our city. And, and one of the ways as we were doing that that I wanted to get involved in, in serving our community more broadly is I decided I'd like to, to run for vice president of the Downtown Neighborhood Association. And, and let me tell you, I won in a landslide. Now, it, it helped uh, that I, was, I ran unopposed. There was no one else running against me. Uh, <laughs> Also, I think there were only like 30 people at the meeting, and, and probably most importantly, no one else wanted to do it. So uh, I, I ended up stepping into this role as, as vice president of the Downtown Neighborhood Association. That was a, a great uh, season of, of being involved in some of our, our neighborhood issues. But the, one of my most vivid memories from that time actually wasn't uh, one of the meetings that we had together, but was something that happened after uh, one of our meetings. We went out as a, as a team to one of these little kind of hole-in-the-wall restaurants restaurant bars in the, in the city market, and uh, we were all gathered around this table uh, eating together. And I remember uh, thinking to myself, um, I had just read, I can't remember if it was a podcast or if it was a book I was reading, but it was something about how Christians should be bold in sharing their faith. 
and, and I don't remember exactly how the events unfolded, but someone said something that I thought, oh, this is my opening. And, and I stepped in, and, and I started to talk about Jesus and my faith and maybe the resurrection. Again, I don't, it's kind of a little fuzzy, but it, it just didn't go real well. And it was kind of one of those conversation-killing moments, and we didn't really know how to move on from that. And I remember we were walking back to our apartment afterwards, and Rachel's like, you shouldn't do that again like that. That wasn't good. Um, and, uh, and she was right. I mean, I don't know that I'd said anything particularly wrong, but just how I entered into the conversation, uh, it wasn't... It just wasn't great. But I remember feeling acutely in that moment as, as that table full of people gathered around there, all young professionals, none of them Christians, uh, was listening to me talk that just the look on their faces was, what is this babbler saying? Um, and, and if you're a Christian here this morning, maybe you've had that experience. You've kind of worked up the courage and you're trying to tell someone about your faith and what you believe about Jesus and how it's impacted your life and that you, you're they just give you this look of, what is this, what is this babbler trying to say? And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You've come with a friend or a family member brought you or you just came here this morning um, and maybe you're starting to think, oh no, I hope I'm not going to have that experience uh, during this sermon this morning. So hopefully that won't be the case. Um, but we, we have this, maybe as a, a, someone who isn't a Christian, maybe you've had someone try to explain their faith to you before and you've kind of wondered, what, what are they trying to say to me? I'm not sure if I get it. I think especially for many of those of us who have grown up around Christian culture, especially uh, here in the Midwest, I think sometimes we struggle to know how to talk about our Christian faith in ways that are compelling or, or frankly even intelligible to those who have little familiarity or background with Christianity. Or in the kind of a, a worst case scenario, maybe if they do have some familiarity or some perception of Christianity, it's either at least partially or wholly negative. And so understandably, I think this can be discouraging to those of us who, who really truly believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is the, the way to life, that he offers something better, and yet it feels like, gosh, I just don't know how to, to articulate this or how to make it make sense to someone. And it can even be kind of a despairing moment to think, how can I actually share my faith of this cultural moment in Kansas City? However, I think what we often forget as Christians is that Christianity, the church, was born, grew, spread, even flourished in a cultural context 2,000 years ago that was just as spiritually and intellectually hostile to the message as our culture is today. That the, the situation that you and I face uh, today here in Kansas City in 2018 is not all that different from when the church began it's not as though people 2,000 years ago, and we've seen this in the Acts, were somehow so much more ready to believe these things. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see how one early Christian leader, the Apostle Paul, uh, navigated this dynamic of, of interacting with a culture that was intellectually, uh, spiritually hostile to the Christian message in his cultural context. And I think his example, while it's not an absolute prescription, we don't want to just reduplicate what Paul's done, I think it's instructive for us today, especially as we answer the question, how do I share my faith so that I'm talking with someone rather than just talking at them or, or talking past them? 
how do I share my faith with someone so that I'm actually talking with them, not just at them or, or past them? And, and the three things, again, these aren't prescriptive, but I think that are instructive from Paul's um, example here this morning. We're going to see these, and I'll unpack these more, but these are the kind of the three things to, to look for. That first, we need to learn to see worship everywhere. Learn to see worship everywhere. Uh, second, we need to look for the common ground and the cracks that we have with those in our culture. And then also we need to lead to someone more. Lead to someone more. Okay, so first, if we're going to learn to talk with people well about our faith, um, what Paul shows us here is that we need to see worship everywhere. We need to constantly be learning to see worship everywhere. Why? Because everyone is worshiping something. Everyone is worshiping something. Because do you notice how the passage began in the Scripture reading? And Paul enters the city of Athens, which had been the cultural capital of the Greek world. And now, even in the Roman era, the Romans conquered the Greek Empire. It's still, it's not quite at the same level, but it still remains a lot of prestige and influence. And what's the first thing that Paul notices when he enters this city? He notices the text tells us that it's full of idols. Um, the ancient Greek geographer Pausinius actually visited the city of Athens in the same kind of time period as Paul did. And this ancient Greek geographer, he described Athens this way. He says, it is easier to meet a god or a goddess in Athens than a, than a man, than a person. Because it's actually, because there's nearly 30,000 different statues in this, in this city. So Pausinius says, it's easier to walk down the street of Athens and, and bump into a statue of a god than to an actual person there. Another historian said it was a veritable forest of idols. It's a vivid image, walking through a forest of idols. And, you know, it's almost impossible to overstate how much of a visceral reaction Paul, the Apostle Paul, would have had to this. Because if you've been with us in the series, as we've been working through the book of Acts, you may remember that Paul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, had grown up in some of the strictest, most devout forms of Judaism at the time which means that from the time that, that Paul was born, before he could even walk, before he could even talk, he heard the Ten Commandments recited over and over and over again. How do the Ten Commandments begin? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself, for yourself an idol. This was, was engraved, ingrained into Paul's life from, from his earliest possible memories. And now he steps into the city full of 30,000 idol statues, temples, sacrifices, all of this everywhere. And it's, it's deeply disturbing to him. But notice this. He doesn't leave the city. He actually goes further in. Sometimes Christians, I think, look at the world around them and they, and they perceive that this is so far from God and his design and his plan and, and, and we just want to withdraw from that but not Paul. Yes, he's deeply disturbed in, in ways that I don't even think we can, I was trying to think this week, what's a, an analogy? I don't even know if there's a good analogy of how disturbed this would have been to Paul. Yes, he's disturbed, but, but he, he enters in. He doesn't withdraw. Verse 17 tells us that then he reasoned with them. 
And that word translated reason in our English Bibles, actually it's the, the Greek word that underlies that is where we get our English word dialogue from. It's the, the root of that idea of, of dialogue, not just sort of talking at someone, but this back and forth, this kind of um, probably the idea is of a Socratic kind of dialogue where you're asking questions, you're listening carefully, trying to under, under, uh, uncover the kind of premises and what does this person really believe? And they're asking you questions back. It's kind of Socratic dialogue. And all of this dialogue, though, it, it leads to what actually could have been a deadly charge against Paul. And that is, and we see it in verse 18, leads to the charge that he's a preacher of foreign divinities, that he's, he's teaching foreign, about foreign gods. And I say that could be a deadly charge. Why? Well, a lot of historians, commentators along the way have noticed that, that this account that Luke gives us here is actually really similar to the account of Socrates it happened several hundred years before, where Socrates, the Greek philosopher, was also charged with being a preacher of, of foreign divinities or, or new gods or new philosophies. And Socrates was put on trial and received the death penalty for that, if you know that story. And in fact, verse 19, I think sometimes we read verse 19 in our Bibles and, and kind of hear it as this kind of polite request where, where Paul, they say to Paul, you know, uh, and they took him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And we sort of think, oh, that's nice. They want to come and listen to him. But probably the force of that is less on the question like, hey, come, we'd love to know more. Tell us about this. It's probably more that in the, the mode of a command that we have a right to know what you're teaching come explain this to us, because you're teaching about foreign deities. And so Paul is taken before the Areopagus, which was this long-established kind of civic and religious body that had um, power to kind of actually exercise uh, jurisdiction in matters of religion and morality. It wasn't just like a, a kind of a university where people would go to learn. It actually had some judicial authority in the areas of, of religion, morality. And again, at this point, you can't really make a, a distinction between, there was not secular and religious life in the, in the Roman Empire. Just everything was religious. So they exercise a lot of power. So here Paul is facing a potentially deadly charge. He's at the Areopagus, this body of people, philosophers, leaders in the city, and notice how Paul begins in verse 22. Paul stands up and says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the object of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And we need to begin where Paul began. We need to begin by seeing worship everywhere because everyone is worshiping something. Now, you might say, Bill, um, I, I get that. Everyone's worshiping something, and, and especially in the ancient world, you're saying there's not really this division between you know, religious life and secular life. It's all religious. I, I get that, but I don't, I don't know if I totally get this thing of everybody's worshiping because I don't know if you've, you haven't met my coworkers, Bill, but they, you know, they may be a lot of things, but very religious is not one of them. Or maybe you haven't met my classmates. They might be a lot of things, but very religious is not a word I'd use to describe my classmates. 
But let me show you what I mean. I don't just mean very religious or worship everywhere in the sense of, of they're going to temples or church or the synagogue or some kind of formal religious ceremony. What I mean is that, that we are all by our nature as human beings. We're worshiping, desiring, longing creatures. We're led by our heart into giving our allegiance to something. And our, our lives are built around these patterns of desires, these patterns of, of worship. Um, the kind of a, a formal word for that is, is liturgy. And sometimes you hear the word liturgy and you might think, oh, that's a, what you do at a, a, you know, a more formal, high church setting, a, a Catholic liturgy or Anglican liturgy. But really, liturgy is just describes a pattern of worship, and we all have these everywhere. And once you have eyes to see them, you start noticing them all around you. So, so let me explain let me an example of what I mean. Philosopher uh, James K.A. Smith um, uses the example of the mall. Have you ever thought about going to the mall as a worship experience? Have you ever thought about the mall as a, as a temple? Because in ways, the architecture can actually uh, sort of mirror, in some ways it's more majestic than, than some churches. It can mirror some of these cathedrals, the high ceilings, the, the light pouring in through the glass. And in a sense, the mall has its kind of own liturgical, kind of its own worship calendar, right? And it kind of overlaps with the Christian liturgical calendar. Christmas is the high point, right? That, and that all the faithful, we gather there at Christmas and we partake in the, the shopping rituals. Um, and you know, there's other moments in the, the mall liturgical calendar. You've got President's Day and Labor Day, and it's only the really faithful who go on those days. It's not everyone comes those times. But this pattern, this routine of that we go and we enter and we shop, and you think about the mannequins, right? The mannequins and the beautifully backlit photography in the store windows. Smith points out that those are the icons of this temple. They are pictures of the good life. They embody for us concrete images of what the good life should be. They are the ideals of perfection to which we aspire. And this is just one example. We can think about the, the liturgy, the pattern of worship around watching professional sports together. Again, think of the kinds of, of buildings, the spaces that we go to to watch sports. I mean, they're like giant temples, places of worship, big seats where we, we're watching what's happening going on, the, the football stadium, the, the baseball stadium. We sing together at those places. We chant together, right? These moments, these, they're shaping us in certain ways. We, we partake in the communion of the beer and the hot dog together. And, you, and, and we laugh, but, but these really are patterns of worship that shape us in some way. They're forming us constantly, which is actually one of the reasons why gathering at church together as a group of people each week is so important, because we are going to worship something, and we're constantly in our culture participating in these worship liturgies. But when we gather here, we're reordering our loves and there's something that happens when you do this all together with a group of people and you move through the ceremony of what church is that you don't get if you're just listening to a podcast or if you're just listening to some worship music by yourself. We gather here to, to reorient ourselves each week around what really is true. 
who really is the object of our worship. So we need to see if we're going to help people, if we're going to effectively communicate the gospel, help them to understand what it is that we believe about the world. We have to understand that we're, we're not asking people to move away from not worshiping anything to now worshiping Jesus or to worshiping the one true God. All of us are already always worshiping. We're asking them to, to recognize that reality and move to worshiping someone that we need to show and we need to be reminded of our, ourselves because it's not as though we're somehow separate from the culture. We live in the midst of this culture ourselves that, that but what we worship as a culture, material comfort, political power and influence, sexuality, we could talk about right, the, the, litter of, the, uh, the liturgy of, of Tinder and the hookup culture, that these gods cannot keep the promises that they're making. That they let us down, that they don't lead to flourishing, Rather, they lead us to heartache, to despair, to loneliness over time. Every one of us today is still very religious. We don't have 30,000 statues of stone and silver and gold, but all the time we're participating in liturgies of worship that are shaping us. We just have to have the eyes to see it. So learn to see worship everywhere. Because everyone, including us, is worshiping something. Okay, so the next thing that we learn from what we see Paul doing here in Acts 17 is that we need to look for common ground and for cracks. We need to look for common ground and for cracks. Why? Because everybody gets part of the story right and also part of the story wrong. Everybody gets part of the story right and also part of the story wrong. Look at how Paul does this. He doesn't come out uh, sort of just attacking the Athenians of the area because he's not even probably really in a place to do that if he wants to stay alive. Um, but he, he comes out and he's very, uh, he's very shrewd. He's very insightful in how he does this. Notice he, he says he notices something true about them, that they're very religious. They were very religious. And then he points to the statue of the unknown God. Hey, maybe there's something here where I can use this as common ground to begin to talk about the one true God. And as we talked about last week, um, if you were here with us, you, you may remember that there's this idea in the Greco-Roman world, again, everything is religious. Your entire life is, is sort of at the mercy of these different gods, the, of your, whether it's the god who's over your trade or your profession or the, the god of the sea. So if you're going on a, on a sea voyage, you better make sure Poseidon is happy with you so he didn't send a hurricane on you while you're traveling. Your whole life is, is kind of revolves around keeping the gods happy so that your, your life will go well with you. And so here in Athens, they have a statue to an unknown god. One pastor is kind of framed it this way. It's like they're just doing their due diligence. We just make sure we got everything covered. We'll even put, you know, in case there's one we've forgotten about or don't know about, we'll make sure that one's happy too. And then later on in his address, Paul finds some common ground in another spot. He actually uses their own philosophers, their own poets, and, and helps say, these are people that, that you accept, that you hold up. And, and they're touching on true things. Verse 28, he quotes one of the philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. And then one of their poets, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul's looking for places of common ground whether it's the unknown God altar, finding places in their kind of literary and cultural world to connect. You see, because human beings are made in the image of God, 
because of something that Christians call common grace. We believe that everybody does get part of the story right. Yes, we live in a, in a bro- broken, fallen world. Yes, we have been influenced by that reality in our thinking, but in God's common grace, we all get part of the story right. Every culture affirms true things. So, for example, you can turn on an episode of Mad Men, and you see actually a really true depiction of what a life lived for self looks like. It's sad, and it ought to make us sad, but it gets part of the story right that when you live for self, it leads to a kind of despair. Or on the other side, you turn on uh, an episode of Stranger Things, and you see the beauty of of self-sacrificial friendship. It gets part of the story right. It, It holds up as beautiful someone laying down their life for their friend. It gets part of the story right. But we also, we do live in a broken, fallen world, which means we get part of the story wrong as well. All of us need something from outside of us. Christians say the Scriptures in particular, outside of us, to to help us to see the places where we are getting the story wrong. All of us get part of the story wrong. None of us know completely. All of us as finite human beings living in, in a fallen world miss it sometimes. It doesn't mean that as Christians we can't have confidence about the the core realities of our faith, but it it ought to bring us to a place of deep humility that, that all of us sitting here in this room today are mistaken about some things. We don't have it all figured out, that we don't have everything right. And from that place of humility, we ought to look at our culture and say, where are the cracks Where are the places where where the worldview, the desires of our culture, where it doesn't line up? And look at those places as opportunities to point to the good news of who Jesus is. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. So, So, for example, think about human rights and the desire for justice for the oppressed. This is an area, again, where we as the church, as Christians, ought to have a lot of common ground with our culture, where we, the idea that human beings are inherently valuable, that they ought to be protected, especially the most vulnerable, that's a deeply, the Bible drives us to that as Christians, and and that overlaps with with our culture in, in lots and lots of ways. But there are ways where we can begin to see cracks in how our culture might talk about that. Again, the culture that we ourselves are a part of. So there's a deep desire for community and, and a wholeness of community, but that's in, in intention and even in opposition at times with another, probably one of the most sacred values in our culture, which is absolute freedom of the individual. If you have individual freedom and you're holding that so highly, it always is going to work against creating true communities of love and sacrifice. Can we point to how the gospel allows us to, yes, have freedom, but give up our own rights and preferences for the good of others, to sacrifice our own wants and desires because of love? Or again, kind of in this vein of of human rights, again, you can point out and you begin to see cracks in in the the sort of the very foundation of how um, a a broadly Western secular culture talks about human rights, because while it, it, it can account for sort of a moral feeling of we ought to, we want to say we ought to care for people, we have this moral feeling that we should care for human rights, 
that, that there's an erosion of the actual foundation of, of on, that, on what basis should we fight for human rights. Because if you don't say that there's a, a foundation of a God who made us, who loves us, who's made us in his image, who's called us valuable and precious, and who actually will one day evaluate how we have treated one another. That you can have moral feeling there, but you can't get moral obligation. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. So, and, and they do this. You can read The Economist or any, read about how evolution, evolutionary biologists kind of account for why, how do you get ethics and morality? And the kind of the, the line of reasoning usually goes, well, as our ancestors evolved, those who were more likely to group together socially, who were more likely to act altruistically, banded together, were able to survive. And so those genes got passed down. Those who were more antisocial all got, you know, sort of killed off. They didn't pass down their genes. And so today we have a, a culture in which we ought to value human beings and, and we have these moral feelings for one another. So you can account for moral feeling on that basis, that we evolved to have a moral feeling, that it's, that it's practical, that it's pragmatic, that it helps us survive. But you really struggle on that account to get moral obligation. But why do I have to? I understand why I feel I might want to, but why do I have to respect human rights? Why should I be altruistic? Why should I, and, and someone might say, well, because it helps us all survive. And what if the person comes back and says, I don't really care about surviving. I don't care about you surviving. In fact, I don't care if I survive. Well, what do you say in response? Well, well you have to. But, but why? Well, just, just be, well, because. It doesn't give a ground for moral obligation, even if it can account for moral feeling. But Paul reminds us, and he proclaims to the Athenians in verse 17, or excuse me, verse 31 here in chapter 17, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This means that our choices really matter. Sometimes the idea of there being a judge can be perceived as so... um, either frightening, which at one level it ought to be, but it actually is incredibly dignifying because it says that what we do as human beings really matter. We're not just um, machines. We're not just automatons. We're not, there's not a, a fatalism about this, that we have real choices, that our, those choices will be evaluated one day of how we've treated one another, how we've loved our neighbor, our family, our friends. That this isn't just something that we just die and then it all ends and stops. Paul says we will give an account. That there will be a judge. It actually makes our life and our choices matter. It gives us a ground for moral obligation. Everyone gets part of the story right. We should recognize that. While also admitting that we ourselves and others also get part of the story wrong. So look for common ground and gently point out the cracks. Show where the promises are failing. So learn to see worship everywhere because everyone's worshiping something. Look for those cracks. Look for that common ground because we all get part of the story right. And finally, lead people to someone more. 
lead people to someone more. Why? Because everyone is looking for something more. Everyone is looking for something more. Did you catch the description of the Athenians in verse 21? It was the very last thing that Emmeline read for us this morning. How are they described? Look again at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. Just like us, they were always looking for something new. They were always looking for something more. They couldn't wait for the next iPhone to come out. They couldn't wait for the next. They were always looking for something new, something more. But Paul, actually, in his message, he ends up pointing them to something really, really old. In fact, not not just old, actually something, someone timeless, someone eternal, someone ageless. Paul says this unknown God that you have is, in fact, the one and only true God who is from all eternity. And how Paul does this, he's masterful. I just, I just want to actually read this for you and, and just pause along the way and make a couple of observations. So this is how Paul begins to do it. It's kind of putting all these pieces together. This is how he does this. He says in verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what you therefore worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God, this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now let's just pause right, right there for a moment. That is such an incredibly different view of God than, than they would have had. All of their gods lived in temples made with human hands. Of course, they believe there's some kind of reality beyond that, but behind that. But they, they all they had these temples. They, their gods needed to be served, needed to be pleased, needed to be kept happy, needed to be upheased. Paul says, this God, this unknown God, the one true God, he doesn't need anything from you. He gives them a massively big God as well, one who made all things who not just made all things, but he rules over all things. He didn't just make the world and then then go away. He, He made the world, and now he rules over heaven and earth. He's the master of heaven and earth. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need to be appeased. He doesn't need to be um, cared for and coddled and taken care of like these other gods. In fact, he says, you are dependent on him for everything, your very breath. Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should see God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, Paul says, he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay, let me pause there once again. Look at what Paul is doing. 
He says there's these allotted periods and boundaries of time. He's giving us this God who's absolutely sovereign. God is in control of all things. He's absolutely transcendent, ruling over the entire world. He's different than us. He's utterly unique and separate from us. And yet, and yet, this very same God who's so high above us, so other than us, so powerful, so sovereign, he's also not far from any one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being. He has revealed Himself to us. Yes, He's in one way impossibly different from us. And yet He's also near to us. In fact, in the history of sort of Christian heresy, you often get heresy when either you make God too transcendent and not imminent enough, not close enough to us, or the other way around that you make him too much like us and not different enough than us. But in Paul's laying this out, yes, he's utterly different, transcendent, and yet he's very near to each one of us. He wants us to know him. He wants you to know him. He already knows you inside and out, everything that you've done or said, everything that you will say or do, he knows it intimately and he loves you anyway. The things that you are most utterly ashamed of in your life, the biggest mistakes, the things that you're, you wouldn't want anyone to know, he knows them and he still loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's keep reading. Verse 29 Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. More on what that means just in a moment. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's Jesus And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Everyone is looking for something more. Everyone is looking for something more. So lead them to someone more. The risen one. Actor Russell Brand recently posted a video on his Twitter feed of, of him talking about um, sort of the, the promiscuity that he's practiced in his life. And it's a, a video he's in, um, in a studio, a radio studio, giving an interview. And it's just fascinating how he talks about um, how he's sort of given up on this lifestyle of, of sexual promiscuity. This is what he says. He says, It takes a while to recognize the emotional cost on me, the spiritual cost on other people, the fact that it's preventing me from becoming a father, from becoming a husband, from settling, from becoming rooted, from actually becoming whole. He says, It takes a while to spot that. And I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to break out of that pattern. And he says, I never would have spotted that had I not first been a heroin addict and gone, Hold on a minute, you're doing that thing again. He says, because I had the template and experiences of addiction, that he says that you're expecting this thing to make you feel better. What's happening is as a baseline, I am disabused of the idea that the material world will give me anything that it will ever fulfill me. Isn't that fascinating? 
He says, having worked through this, this addiction of heroin, I now am disabused of the idea that the material world will give me anything, that it will ever fulfill me. When you come to that place in your life, when your friend or neighbor or worker comes to that place in his or her life, when your classmate comes to that place in their life, when they, then they begin to realize that there is nothing in this world that will ultimately satisfy me. Are you ready to turn away from all of that to the only one who can satisfy the deepest longings that you have? To the one who can promise you heaven and earth, who can promise that he will never leave you or never forsake you, that he has proved to you on a cross and by the resurrection that not even death can separate you from his love or from the life that he can give to you. Because he took the judgment that judgment that we read about a few verses ago, Jesus has taken that judgment for us. He's rescued you from death, not just physical death, but eternal death of separation from him. He's rescued you from all of that. Are you ready to lead others to turn to something more? Are you ready yourself, even as a Christian, to continue to turn to someone more? Paul commands us, strong in verse 31 commands us all to repent repentance can kind of be a i think a biblical or kind of churchy word but repentance simply means turning away from looking for our satisfaction and our hope in the material world and looking to the one who's made us and made everything else for our only hope and satisfaction it means turning away from that to the one who is true life, true love. Don't you see? Because of our sin, God is further from us than we can ever know. But because of Jesus, God is nearer to us than we could ever dream. You see, ultimately as Christians, we don't persuade others with airtight arguments. We simply bear witness to an airtight person, to the person who will never fail us, who always keeps his promises, who will never ultimately let you down, who satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, would you make us a congregation full of people who don't have all the answers, who know that we don't get it all right all the time, but who bear witness to an airtight person, who bear witness to a flawless, faultless person who never lets us down, who never deceives us, who always keeps his promises to us, who will give us everything that we have ultimately longed for if we are willing to give up our life and follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name, our only hope, our judge and our Savior. Amen. Well, each